Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I am the host of the Sendcast and the managing director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the Sendcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. On this week's episode, we're discussing school non-attendance with my guest, Susie Rowland. Susie is an author of books supporting pupils around autism, ADHD and non-attendance. She founded the Happy in School project to provide training consultancy around pupils with ADHD and autism enjoying school. The same cast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We help show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We help schools show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school struggling to show progress, you're not sure about the engagement model or anything else, we can help. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing non-attendance, school phobia, school avoidance, or my least favourite, school refusal. My guest this week is Susie Rowland. Susie is an author of books supporting pupils around autism and ADHD and non-attendance. Her book, Sending the Clowns, is aimed at families supporting them to untangle the red tape to support their children with autism or ADHD. She founded the Happy in School Project to provide training consultancy around pupils with ADHD and autism to enjoy school, whatever that looks like. Welcome to the show, Susie. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking me. You are welcome. So school attendance is very divisive. I understand that a high attendance increases pupil outcomes, creates a good work ethic, etc., etc. And we all strive for that. And that works for a large percentage of pupils who enjoy school and can access school. It doesn't work for those who don't enjoy school, and I use don't enjoy as a monumental understatement, or cannot attend for medical reasons or other reasons. These families are then punished by the school system for their lack of attendance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a very complicated problem, and I think we've seen more of it since COVID. I think those that were vulnerable to school avoidance have been hit particularly hard by COVID. Although Anna Freud research does show that lots of this cohort were happier at home and more relaxed without all of the pressures of school. But conversely, the same cohort, some of them were also missing the structure of school, seeing their support person, seeing their friends. So we've got a real mixed bag, actually. And I'm talking about a cohort who are mainly neurodivergent, so autistic, ADHD, dyslexic and autistic, PDA, pathological demand avoidance, which is, again, another selection of words that aren't particularly comfortable, but we all know what we mean. And I think the language that we use around these issues is really important. I had a young girl with me last week and we are working with her family back into the school environment. So we're looking at a phased return. And so far, so good. She's been in, as we agreed, did a half day on Monday. And we're looking at a very gentle reintroduction after a pretty choppy time before the summer holiday. And now she's working her way back into school gradually. 
but it may not work. The issues are quite significant that she's facing. And there is talk of a special school. And she said to me, I don't want to go to a special school. What does special mean? Why do I have to be special? Why can't I be normal? So all of the language that we use around special educational needs, difference, neurodiversity, special school refusal, it's all so loaded and also takes away from the power of the individual. We're kind of diminishing young people to these labels, which sometimes isn't very positive for their mental health and sense of self. So I just want to touch on this girl because you told me a bit more. It was a college setting. This is actually a girl I'm talking about. There were two different girls. So the first one in the college setting, she went back. She'd been out of college for over a year and been quite ill. So it was big news. I mean, we negotiated a phased return, which is we're at the beginning of that process. And she went back in on Monday, although the colleagues had gone back in on Thursday, I think it was. And she did the tutor time, so went in at 8.30 until I think about one o'clock. So did a whole morning as agreed and was extremely pleased that she'd done that and so were her family. So it's very much looking at what those expectations are and seeing what is reasonable for that young person to achieve. Now, she was told and her family were told, well, we are looking, it's great to have you back after a long period outside of education, but we are expecting 100% attendance. (laughs) So we had to negotiate this phased return and say, well, we understand that would be great, but it's probably not going to be achievable in the first half term or even the first two terms. So what can we agree on? And instantly that conversation took a huge amount of stress and anxiety about these returning conversations. It does. And I think I get the whole point of aiming for 100%. I completely understand it. I do. But it's not always possible. And that thing I just want to touch on is when you are going to college, you're going to be going for A-levels or T-levels or B-techs or something. And if you can't access that college, yeah, I'm not talking about the work or that or anything. We're talking about accessing college as a whole entity and everything that comes with it. Okay, we'll go to a special school or specialist setting. The moment that happens, your choices of qualifications, the level of qualifications nearly always drops hugely down to functional skills or we do numeracy, we do literacy. And that's really unfair. That is so unfair because there's something about that school, something about that college, which I cannot cope with. But if I got into my course, I was able to do that course at home, I would nail it, I'd fly through it. But because I can't handle something in this building, It could be the people, it could be something, whatever it is, that's the rest of my life affected. Mm. And I hate that. That's a really good point, actually. What we've got is, in this particular example, I will use examples because I think it's really important not to generalise. Yes. So in this particular case, we have a very intelligent young woman doing A-levels. And in fact, the work around that we've come to with the family is that she is going to sit some subjects completely independently of the college. 
and do some other ones within the college setting. And that's for a number of reasons. I mean, her sort of part of the profile is also her diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. And there are some things that she knows she can't cope with in the college environment. And I think these things, we have to be really careful that we are not limiting the sort of academic and intellectual scope and scale of the person because of their particular set of problems or mental health difficulties. So I think all the flexibility, and we have seen some in this particular case of the college, have been really helpful to enable her to sort of work around the challenges that she's having whilst achieving the A-levels that she wants to achieve. So she has actually got the chance to fulfil her potential whilst managing and, you know, navigating the problems that are still there, actually, but making it not a debilitating thing. So she has to drop out from that college completely. So I see that as a success. And so so do the family. I mean, we're at the beginning of term. There's a long way to go. We have a whole year, academic year, to get through. And I think we have to, part of my job is to help the establishment understand that it's not a straight line up the curve of recovery. No, It is going to be more of a wavy line, but still going in a very good direction. So we are looking for sustained support. And I think that's the other thing. We sometimes have the, yes, we can do this and it'd be great. We can put this in place and put this in place. And then hopefully by this time, they can lose all of that and go back to existing as their peers do. So we did sort of remind, say, well, the reason that all of these things are in place is because they are needed. So they need to be sustained for as long as they are needed. I think that wavy line bit is really important. So she went in, she did four hours. Doesn't mean she can do always do four hours. She did today, but next Wednesday she can't. Okay. So, and it is, it's going to be, so what's changed? What's, mm. is it the weather? It could be anything that's made that different. It could be whatever that reason. Okay. And it's unpicking those reasons. And as you find those reasons of why it's waving down or dropping, what's the reason? How can we support that? And it's not going to be a, oh, if you've been here for four hours, we've ticked it. It's masterful. We just increase our stamina. Whatever. However, it's no, it's not like that. It's, if we come right back to what we're talking about, which historically has been called school refusal, which as we discussed previously, it just sounds like I'm okay. I'm okay for cake. No, No thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I refused the cake. It sounds like that. It's a polite no. Are you going to come to my party? I'm refusing today. It's just a very polite thing. And I like the term phobia because some parents have fully experienced a fight which is probably like if you brought a spider into a room, how that person would react. And it's quite physical and lots of emotions. It feels like more of a phobia. Susie then pointed out it's not a phobia because of very specific reasons, which she's correct. But it's that sort of thing. It's not a polite thing. Mm. So I like that talk, that firm school phobia, because it helps you think and really see what that child is thinking. There is something about that school that I cannot cope with. I cannot deal with. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the question around phobia is there's normally a specific thing that if you're spider phobic, arachnophobic, there will be the spider or if you have a fear of water, it's a specific thing. But with school phobia or school avoidance or school anxiety, 
it's not always easy to pinpoint what is that thing. And all of the young people I talk to in the research for my book, they all have a slightly different thing. And many of those things are anxiety. They present as anxiety. But again, if we're going to look into, well, what's the cause of this and where did it start and how is it being, how is your anxiety being maintained? There will be a number of things or one or two things in particular that are causing the young person distress. So some of them have said to me, well, actually, it's the way that I feel when I can't answer a question and people laugh, or it may be the way I feel because I have to have somebody sitting with me, or it could be because I don't have a good relationship with my class teacher or it could be because I'm the only one that isn't picked for PE, we know, which is social isolation. So I think it's good to sort of align it with a phobia because then people understand the extreme yeah. and the physical responses that the young person is experiencing. And I have come across a couple of young people who, have, who are actually having panic attacks yes, because they're unable to go to school. And so I think it is important that there is a recognition of how physical and visceral that fear is and that panic and that anxiety. And that's why I called the book, I, I Can't Go to School, because it, it's not, not a polite refusal. Are we going to school? No, thanks. It's all right. Yes. <laughs> it's actually, I've had them say, I would like to go to school. I really want to go to school, but I can't. And there's a whole different feeling around that, wanting to. And even some girls have said to me, and one particular young man said, I miss my friends, but I just can't get into school. It's too hard. They know all the pros. They know all the benefits. They get it all, but there is a block. Absolutely. There is a barrier. And that's the thing that the policymakers are looking at is what are those barriers to education? And I think, I mean, because the area is so broad and sort of multifaceted, there are social barriers. They could be barriers around poverty. I've included information about a school that actually was had a deal with an outfitters who were giving blazers to kids at school who weren't going to school because they didn't have they couldn't afford a blazer. So we have a quick solution there that the school did a deal with an outfitters and they were able to give donate blazers. So sometimes the barrier can be economic, it can be social, sometimes the barrier can be around the home situation, which again is complicated. We could get into issues of trauma, bereavement. It could be displacement, a young person not living with their immediate family, living with a grandparent, a child who's a refugee, has moved around a lot, not quite sure. So there are many reasons which I have touched on, but there is predominant focus of the neurodivergent group who are autistic and ADHD, PDA, because they, that is the group that is most vulnerable to school non-attendance. And one of my nephews has a separation anxiety. Yes. Parents divorced, doesn't see the dad, worried that if he goes to school, his mum won't be there when he gets back. So therefore, the best thing to do is to stay at home because mm. that way his mum can't go. So you have, as he said, that home side, you have that sort of thing. Mm. A boy in my daughter's school on the spectrum struggled with things the school really didn't support him in a good way made the situation worse which created trauma in his head to the point he was having nightmares about the head teacher yeah so he was literally waking up screaming dreaming about the head teacher 
And then in the morning, well, let's go to school. And the mum tried fight with him in the car, get him into the car. Then they'd get to the school. He would refuse to come out to the car. Then the head teacher would come out to try and coax him in. But that's who he's just had. And it's just, yeah, you could take five steps back, think of this pure logically, take all the emotions out and go, oh, he's just naughty. He's just, there is something. There's always something logical to you or not. Yeah. And that's the thing is working on the podcast with Alison Knowles. Mm. Yeah. When my daughter's being weird or says that's weird, I can't say no, it's not. Because to her it is. It's a mm. real thing. Yeah. So I can't say you're being silly. I can say I get you under you're having this, but I don't understand. I don't feel this. So can you explain it to me? So I can't say she's not having this. Yeah. It definitely is a very real thing to my daughter or to that boy or to anyone. It is happening. It is real, but I don't understand it. Mm. When I understand it, I might be able to get to her to change her perception. I can't change it. I can't see her change her seeing it, but I can change her perception of it. I can't just dismiss it. Mm. I think when you talked about the the child who has to go home and his mum won't be there, that's interesting because another part of the non-attendance can be attachment issues at home. So then we have a kind of reinforcement oh, well, I can't go to school, or a young person looking after who is a carer, looking after an elderly relative or a younger child, or some kids even are staying at home while their parents are going to work. I mean, there are lots of issues that are less than appropriate, but this is reality. So it's important that there is a real understanding of that individual child setup. And there are lots of good protocols by the Emotional Support Service or the Educational Psychological Service in local authorities. So there's some great protocols. I know that Hertfordshire have a good one and Kent, so they have very good protocols in place. But I think it's ultimately, it's about what is this child's daily situation? What are, and a little bit about what has their, what's got them to this point? What some of the history? Some of the history, exactly. And how much time can we invest in working out where these patterns have originated? And I think this is the big challenge for teachers and Senkos and, you know, Elsas today, because there is limited time to invest. And I know that one of the one of the key aims is early intervention. If we can see a pattern developing, what how can we intervene early so this pattern of non-attendance doesn't become entrenched? But it is it's also because there are many professionals who may be involved in that process. There may be social workers involved if there's a potential safeguarding issue. So you can see how not going to school regularly or having a, an attendance drop to like a the sort of warning level when it drops below whatever it might be in that school, whether it's below 80 or below 70. And then things start to trigger a sort of series of events. You can see actually it's quite a large undertaking to follow that up with the young person get the family's involvement or who are the key the key carers for the child, maybe some other third parties. There may be a requirement for some medical testing or intervent, medical intervention or psychological assessments. So all of a sudden it becomes quite a complex pattern to unpick, doesn't it? 
And I think that there is a lot of pressure on schools and policymakers. School is a safe place for children. We know where they are. We, they are protected. They're under the jurisdiction of the school. That's the optimum place for young people to be. For most pupils. <laughs> That's the intention. Well, this is the thinking. Yes. This is the thinking behind it. This is why there is this drive for high attendance levels. But as we know, the reality isn't that for every child and family. And I think sometimes that reality only comes to light when there is a crisis situation. So that crisis situation could be a sort of sustained, what they call persistent absence. I don't even like the word persistent because again, it sounds like it's like it has a very sort of deliberateness about it, doesn't it? Persistent absence. What, why is that child being persistently absent? But I mean, one of the things I talk about in, in my fam- with my family sessions is it's a wholeness. So it's the family and the child and the school working together collaboratively. And I say that, but collaboration isn't always easy to achieve when there are pressures and targets underpinning all that. And there's also that feeling of that the adversarial feeling can very quickly come to light when there are letters or emails coming through and, dare I say, fines. So very quickly, what could have been a good collaborative team effort of professionals understanding, working and listening to the young person what we find sometimes is a broken situation where, you know, that whatever anxiety was there is sort of tripled and then it becomes a whole family issue. I mean, it'd be interesting is if anyone's involved in this, I'd love you just to maybe take a step back and ask this question is if you are having a meeting with a family about low attendance, that family and that child will be there to try and remove those barriers so their child can attend school. And that's what their focus is, their child, their attendance. Yes. Is that always the focus of the school? Is the focus trying to remove the barriers or is the focus trying to get above that threshold in terms of percentage attendance? Are you actually trying to solve the problem or are you, that the child's facing or are you trying to solve your school's problem, which is your minimum at your attendance level because you're getting told off by the local authority because sometimes you, you go in and you're going in because the attendance has dropped below this level so you've printed a report out you've got a list of pupils you're going through these and you're just trying to tick off a box to get your attendance back up you're not f- always fully thinking what do we have to put in place because mm. you don't have the money you've got the prey that's it's a very complicated but sometimes you sit there and you think we're in the same meeting we're all trying to solve this child and help them, support them. But is the school, is that what they're doing? Or are they just trying to get the local authority off their back? And I know you're probably going, no, definitely. But the problem is I'm very sceptical on things. And I know where we're all led by money. We're all led by pressure from above. And that will have an impact on you. You might not even realise it. 
but your tone in that meeting is dr- is driven by someone pressuring you to get this percentage up. I mean, the meetings that I've been involved with, I mean, I say this with every issue around SEND, it's very much about the leadership. Yes. That sets the tone for how everyone else behaves. I mean, you no one can change what the budgets are. No. But what we can change is the mindset towards transparency and honesty, what's achievable. And also flexibility, how flexible are we and knowledge. So there are quite a few things that are within our gift. And as I've just mentioned, so, and all of those can make a huge difference. And it's also how much you can protect your staff from those pressures from above. Absolutely. And I think that when you're in that meeting, you're quite right. Everyone is thinking that they're solving the same problem. But there are different conversations going on behind the scenes. What can we get out of this? How quickly can we get child A back into school? And parent might be thinking, well, how much help can they give my child? How quickly can we get an EHCP? How are we going to get through to the end of term? So you're quite right. There are lots of different... And just touch on that, going back to that example of that that person going to college, Mm. we want 100% attendance. Again, so that person was going, I need to tick a box. I need to hit this because that's what I'm being told. Not really going, where are we? What's the next step? They're going, we need 100%. It's, there's that mentality from the schools, from the pressures mm. that's being put on them. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting one because anyone who wants their school to be well regarded and have high attainment, and that's what everyone wants for their child anyway, if that's within the gift of the individual child, I think it is always good to be aspirational. And I think that, that it would be strange if a school wasn't striving for as near as possible full attendance and all the rest of it and good grades for their pupils. But I think within that, there has to be a level of real politic in terms of how are we really supporting our, our children on the SEN register or who, even those that may not have a diagnosis, but those that are in need of additional support from us to achieve their objectives. So I think there has to be an honesty around that. And I think what confuses parents is reading the website and all of this content around pastoral care and the content around send provision and the waves of intervention. And it looks good on the website. And so the expectation is high for that to be delivered. Now, again, I think it's right to put that, it's right to aspire to that. But I think the issue arises when we have this, shall I say, a reality gap or a credibility gap. It's that reality gap that is going to be happening, but the ease of accessing it, thats the, it's that, oh, so if there's a problem, we'll go straight to here. It's, that's a bit, it's, mm. that's, it's, we're not doing the early intervention thing well in lots of situations. So there is a wave one, wave two, yeah. And you go, we'll do that. It's like, that's not like if we'll get that on there in three days. It's more like we'll try various things for three, four months till it's really becoming a pain. Mm. And then we move on. So yeah, I think it's that reality gap of, oh, we've got all this in place, but it's kind of when things go wrong, mm. we go to that. It's not kind of we use this quickly, we use this early. It's kind of, there's normal children and there's the SEN. And only when we can say, oh, it looks like he's SEN. Oh, I'll now do this. It, you've got to have that fall, I'm going to call it, a fall of things going wrong, it not working, problems arising, 
and this is again where the boisterous boys who present and create problems will get noticed and will reach that. But if you've got a girl who's masking and towing the line and not causing any problems, it's really hard to access. It is. And it's interesting you say that because the work around non-attendance, I have about 80% girls. That's who, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, that could just be how it falls, how the parents that approach me, but I, somehow I don't think so. I think there is a lot of the young girls that I do meet, as you say, are autistic, masking. I have privilege of looking at their reports, very good reports. Yeah. And then when I see the young person and they share their distress about how difficult masking is for them, and how they have to almost hide who they are, because when they don't hide who they are, they are ridiculed. Yes. I mean, that level of control required, and then the feelings of rejection yes. when they're not accepted in by their peers. And sometimes, depending on what's happening, how big the class is, sometimes the sort of teasing or microaggressions for one to low we have some low level bullying low level bullying microaggressions that they are experiencing is sort of not fully dealt with yeah at the time and space when it's happening and i understand that there's a curriculum to get through there's a whole bunch of peer group to to educate and we need to keep this thing moving we've got to deliver we're all in year 9 year 10 whatever it is and there's lots of things to do when that young person sees that incident or a number of incidents aren't fully expedited, they then start to lose their trust in that teacher or that trusted adult. But they don't raise it. They don't. It'll be so much easier if these girls punch someone because that would be a flag that the school would see. So very, well, wow, why has that happened? It'd be something wrong. But no, it's... The masking, it's the being the perfect child. It's the, that slow build up. But children should be seen and not heard. And the girls with autism fit into that old type thing. They sit there and it's just me. And they just go very quiet. What I'm seeing in this particular case is a young person who is so used to masking and so used to the sort of low level bullying because she has a different way of interacting and so used to not being picked for things, that in itself is becoming traumatising. And the fact that she's beginning to lose her trust in some of the teachers who don't have the time to manage every single incident or manage or educate the peer group that that kind of behaviour isn't acceptable and that everyone should be included. And these are her words. So this is not some sort of teacher's bad, autistic kid's good at all. This is just a sort of a shared morsel of what I hear on a regular basis. And I think it's a real pity because I think that the staff would feel quite upset if they knew the extent to which some of these young people are shielding their feelings and hiding it all and then just completely collapsing. So as you say, rather than a punch, what they do is they just slide away. So we yeah. have an attendance that's slowly falling and then now not going to school at all. 
And then it becomes a bit of a panic and people say, what can we do and how can we get her back in and blah, blah, blah. But actually talking about sort of flags and early intervention, there was a way that that young person could have time and space within a speech and language session or something that's a constructive way of learning to talk about the difficulties of being in school because many of the causes of school non-attendance are actually environmental. And that can be, say, it can be physically the building, it can be the canteen, it can pushing in, it can be pushing in the corridors. Yeah. But it can also be the breakdown of the relationship between the young person and the trust they have in the adults in their school setting. Yeah. And I think going back to what I was saying earlier, that is something that we do have control of. How much do does my cohort send or other? How much trust do they have in me as their trusted adult in the class? Because there's loads of things happening in, with young people. I mean, they have access to the world at their fingertips through their phones. And they're all seeing things that perhaps they shouldn't. I know my son said to me recently, I remember when I was in year seven, I saw things that I can't unsee. Yeah. And I don't think that's uncommon. So they are sort of hyper-connected in one way, but in another way, particularly if they are struggling with social interaction, social communication, processing delays, potentially, all of those things, they kind of have all of this stuff, but there's nowhere to sort of disperse it safely, it seems, or not enough places to disperse it safely. So as you say, you've got all of this stuff all pent up inside and we're saying, well, why can't you go to school? And you can imagine if you're that child, 11, 12, 13, 14, 14 is quite a trigger age because it's just about going into options. It's when most young people are hitting puberty and it's that age where you start to break away from your parents and start to try to form your own tribe. And so when you're asking them, well, why aren't you going to school? Why can't you go to school? There's a huge amount of things there that they just can't put into words. No. And you've mentioned about the trust of those teachers and my, my, my nephew, different nephew, he became a school phobic, school avoider. He didn't have the trust. Various incidents happened with staff. One of them got registered as a safeguarding incident was the level. Categorised he had PTSD. It was purely no trust in the staff to look after him. And yet that's what they're there for. And it's interesting that trust is really important. That trust, and not just with the school, but that trust with your parents and your house. So most children who mask will mask in school and release at home. It comes out at home. There are some situations where the other way around. That's reversed, yeah. But most of the time, they're masking at school. They're in the outside world. They're Miss Goody Two-Shoes. They come home. Satan's little sister comes out type thing. You, it will come out in different ways, but they have that thing. And, and it's, yeah, it's not great at home. Yeah. My, my daughter masks at school. and. We have good days, bad days. And, but I like the fact that she doesn't mask with me. 
That's a compliment. It's not the best compliment you receive, it may be. But actually, the fact she feels she can be herself with me is great. So there's a whole trust thing that you as a parent have to have with your child. And it is a trust and respect which goes two ways. So your home is your safe place. Your parents are your safe people. And if school is a phobia and your parents are pushing you to that phobia without really changing anything, if I find out that Susie's really scared of spiders, which she is, <laughs> and no matter what you she does... You keep mentioning spiders, Dale. <laughs> there's one behind you, there's not. Oh. <laughs> but if I keep, kept going, oh, okay, we'll leave that, let's go into this room. And every room I took Susie into, there was a giant spider, she would lose that trust of me. And she, I'm, not, I'm just not doing it. And then there's that trust breakdown at home. So and it was Alison Knowles who said, or oh, might be been Sarah Jane, might have been both of them. So is, you should only push so far as a parent. Otherwise, if you go beyond that, all you're doing is damaging the relationship between you and your child, which is the last thing you should destroy. When everything, this thing, when your school's telling you you've got to bring your child in and you're as a parent going, I've got to, you some point have to look at your child and go, what's right for you and me and our relationship? Because if that breaks down, it's going to do more damage. And that's a real thing is everything tells you as a parent because you might have got 100% attendance certificates. You might have been pushed and you got told how important attendance is and above all else, especially you teachers who will go in with a leg hanging off because <laughs> you have to. <laughs> I don't want to let anyone down. It's like, have you seen the state you're in? I've still got to go in. And you teachers do. And it is phenomenal. But it's not always right. It's not always right for the person's mental health. And if you've been forced that way as a parent, you've got to actually sit there and go, actually, is this hurting my child? If this is damaging my child, if my child literally looks like it, it appears as a phobia going into school, perhaps we have to change. I think the role of the parent is critical. And I think that the we talked about collaborative relationships with the school versus adversarial. Yeah. And there is this thing about parent workshops or parent training and how you feel no one can tell me how to parent. I know what I'm doing. And it is a difficult scenario because I certainly feel that I've grown as a parent, as a person, and I've changed the way I parent since my son's diagnosis. And it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. And whether, you're, whether or not you're neurodivergent yourself, your child, your neurodivergent, child may not have the same uh, sort of traits yep. or ways of being as you. So you found your work around as an adult and, but in a way you still need to respect your child's ability as a sentient being by themselves as an individual is what's working for them. And I think listening to the young people talk was such a gift because I learned so much because there are some that are really keen to go back into the school setting. But can you make sure they've changed this and this? So yeah, that's fine. That's achievable. Let's talk about that. Let's talk to the school. There are others who may be passionate about drawing and say, all I want to do is art. There is nothing else I want to do in the world. Please don't make me go in and do maths and history and chemistry because I don't want to do it. And I've had young people say quite dramatic things 
if you make me go in, if they make me go in, or if you parent make me go in, this will happen. So you have to have both ears open and one mouth closed sometimes. (laughs) And that's hard because if you're used to being a facilitator and a mouthpiece and an advocate for your young person, there does come a time when you've got to step back and they may not pursue the path you may have thought for them, whatever that might be, if it involves getting a what we call a quote traditional education. It's, yeah, that you, I know my child best. Yeah. 99% true. Yeah. Because only constraint in that is you know your child best with you. You don't know your child best on their own. When you're there, they'll, re- they'll react to you. So you don't know what they're like on their own. You can always learn. As you said, your parenting changes. I think the more mm. you learn, and the fact I do this podcast, and I've learned, I've talked to so many people about mm. so many topics, is my parent, my parenting is changing weekly for the better. I'm a lot more relaxed. All these hard and steadfast rules I used to have have disappeared. And we're meandering down this, not a fixed, almost like concrete-sided road. Mm. We're meandering down some paths with all different things, and we're going in the right direction because... There's a certain thing of they, they work it out for themselves. And, but I learn from so many people. So you know your child best, but only by how you're impacting them. But then your child might be autistic. And if you actually met a hundred other autistic children or adults at different stages, you will see something very different. You'll come back to your child and you'll see them differently because of you see it one way because of your upbringing. Know, there's so many things you see your way in your child, as you said. I was going to learn a certain way. This is right for them. That's what, that's what they want. So parents do generally know their child, and especially when it's the uh, adversary school versus parent. Often the parent is the person in the right, but it doesn't mean they're 100% right. There's room for change. There's room for growth. They might be based on opinions that, they that were true two years ago, but their child can now advocate for themselves, which is, it's hard to step back. It's very hard to step back and know when to step back. And you'll never step back at the right time. You'll always step back late. <laughs> but it's that being open to some criticism, if it's constructive. Yeah, it's got to be a partnership both ways. Mm. And it is, the child knows themselves best. And definitely at primary school, you are kind of doing that voice for the child because you're observing and they can't put it into words and their level of understanding. As they get older, their view of the world, as you said, will be different to yours. Where they want to go will be different to yours. That's not wrong. It's not right. I think the outcomes, I think as a parent, you need to be very... Pragmatic. I talked earlier about special schools and I think that needs a rebrand as well, actually. But the care and attention and potentially the ability to support special talents and facilitate a freedom of character and soul that may not be permissible or acceptable in a different sort of school. So there are lots of young people who will flourish in an environment like that. But something in them thinks, 
and I hear this a lot, but my child's really bright. I don't want them to go to a special school. My, my nephew, the school refuser, started getting back to school. He is very clever. And they gave him a, I think it might be a functional level two maths test. It took him 45 minutes to pick up the pencil. Yeah, that was his issue. Picking up the pencil, that's where he struggled. He did the test in 20 minutes and got 100%. Yet he hadn't been in school for over three years. So, but that was the highest level that school offered. And he did it in 20 minutes and got 100%. So that's the thing is, they can thrive if there is the right environment. And one of the things as a parent, when you said, all they always want to do is art, in my head I'm going, but they have to get a four in GCSE in English and math. Oh, <laughs> yes. Their life is ruined, which is kind of what's drummed into you. But what if? But also the thing I really don't like is with the new GCSEs, all children have to be put into the GCSEs, even if it's not the right thing because they get, it's the only way they get progress, eight points, whatever it is is if they do GCSEs. If they do functional maths, it doesn't count. Mm. So therefore, even though functional maths, that child who just wants to do art and just wants to draw, and you go, look, you go shopping, yes, you do this, yes, you need a certain level of reading. And you then might be able to convince them, look, we're not going to do Pythagoras. Mm. We're not going to work out a, we're not going to do all that silly stuff. Let's just look at what you need for life. And you might be able to convince them and go, okay, I see a reason. And let's do that because now they can get some math qualification. They can get some English qualification. They can get to that level of numeracy and literally they're going to need in life. But they can enjoy drawing. They can enjoy school. That would be great. That it, would, it would be, be great. Yeah, it would be great. I mean, the, the people that I've, I work with, I think it's a real eye-opener because there is a huge amount of understanding about what they need. They understand what they need. They understand how to navigate a lot better than we often give them credit for. My, my daughter's just going to college and I didn't step back soon enough. I wanted to show her how to get to college and I just thought it went, no, she's got to find her own way. I've got to really step back. And I keep wanting to do things for her. And all of a sudden she's just picked it up. Yeah, she's on Indeed. She's applying. She's 16. She's applying for jobs. Mm. Somebody phoned her back. She called them back. Like, you never talked to anyone. Have you even picked up a phone? And she goes, I've got an interview tomorrow. Going, how have you got an interview? She went and did an interview. And I'm literally going, and I am in awe. Mm. But now I'm going, what could she have achieved if I stepped back earlier? She's now found who she is and she's going. But was she not going because I was doing things for her? Mm. And that's, that's going to hurt my head for a long while. That's not a very helpful thought process, <laughs> But as is, is you said, if you talk for them, yeah. they won't find their voice. Mm. So you've got to allow them to work out what they want. Mm. And that's hard, but mm. very important. I think, I mean, a lot of the parents are looking at sort of what I call pick and mix education and doing sort of hybrid things. So they sort of go into school a little bit and then they're homeschooled a little bit. And I think those options, once parents have actually worked out how it works for them and what the local authority rules are, I think that there is a lot of scope actually, but it does depend on how much time you have. Because again, you probably know this from other guests, but there's a huge amount of, let's say, career change amongst parents who have kids with additional needs. So, you know, massive income drops and all the rest of it. But I think if it's something that that will work for your family, and, I, and I'm really keen that it's 
what's best for your family? Because some families, it will be a return to school, a return to former school, or a return to another school, or a return to another school a bit and a bit of homeschool, or it may be a different sort of school entirely. There are many different options. And I think it can feel so overwhelming and so sort of stuck. You get in this whole sort of, well, this isn't working and we haven't got this and I'm waiting for an assessment and we're doing an emergency annual review. And I just try and remind everybody in the process to breathe a bit because it will work out and it looks pretty difficult. But I think some of the external forces like, you say, fines and things like that and Ofsted and those kind of things can add a layer of pressure into a situation which isn't necessarily helpful. I just want to just go back to the income drop because mm. it's just a, it's a passing phrase, but it is for so many parents who had visioned they have their careers, they have their lives, they're going to have their kids, they'll drop them off, they'll pick them up, they go to before school club, all that sort of stuff, and they'll have their life. And then life doesn't turn out that way. And one of the parents has to give up work. And that's very different. And that has a very big financial impact on the family. So, again, as a parent, what's your reason for wanting them to get back to school? That will cloud how you are in these meetings because you need to get back, you need the money, you need things. And then having that situation is that's going to have an impact on everyone's relationship in that household. It can get, it can go downhill in lots of ways. So that income gap is just like a little phrase, but it's, Mm -hmm. don't, I don't think people realize what that means that your income, that your future you've planned on with these two incomes coming in, we can afford this house, we'll get this mortgage, half of money's disappeared. And that's life. That's what you've now got to deal with. But for how long? And it puts those financial pressures on you as a parent. It's all that going on. Why can't you just go to school? It's not hard. Everyone else, that sort of tone can enter into the conversation rather than what we all would love to do is be completely calm about all of this and just go, what's right for you? That's not always possible. No, there are practical and logistical issues. And I was chatting to somebody and the other day and she said to me, I explained what I was doing. She said, well, why can't they just drop their kids off and drive off? They'll be okay. And she was only half joking. And I think if you're not in that world and facing those difficulties, it is really difficult to understand all of the complexities. And I think the other thing to take into account is employers. If you are a parent of a child with a physical disability, somehow there is a level of understanding that you might need time off to go to appointments, etc. And I think that the world needs to catch up on uh, quote hidden disabilities and the impact it has on people who are working full time yeah. whilst caring or parenting young people with hidden disabilities, mental health conditions. I mean, we talk so much about it, but there seems to be a disconnect between those families and then what happens in the workplace. I always used to find it very difficult to say, I've got to go to a meeting at my son's school. And I said, why, what's wrong with him? (laughs) (laughs) 
how long have you got? <laughs> yes. It, yeah. There's nothing wrong with him, but do you know what I mean? Having to then explain everything and see people's blank expressions when you they didn't quite know. And, and I'm sure they're thinking, well, he's just a naughty kid. And you're just a pushover. And you're just wanting to bunk yeah. off and go home early. How do we know we're going to, you're really going, you know, if you go to the dentist, you normally get a certificate, get a thing that you can send to your yes. employer or... So I think this is something that the whole society needs to get on board with. And so most people get paid sick leave. Dependency leave isn't always paid in lots of situations. So if you're off because of your child, there's no legal reason for that person to pay you. And if you are expected to be in for so long and your dependence causes you time off, then your job might not be there for much longer. Because So that is so many levels to this, which just removes it from a parent and child having a conversation and going, how can I help you? Into a very complicated question with so many facets and waiting going on. It's a very hard situation. It's huge, isn't it? I think if you are a parent of a child under six, it used to be how this used to apply to me when I was in full-time employment, that you do have some legal, I think there's this, you know, a parent with care under child under six. And this is where, you know, what it's one of those very overlooked areas of working within the field, but what are your rights as an employee um, around all of this? And I think you have to really understand. And also is your, it sounds a bit of a sort of cliche, but is your employer a disability positive employer? And how do you raise these issues with your boss or with your colleagues? Because I, I found it, I just used to keep it all to myself because it, it was so overwhelming and so emotionally draining. I get a call at, at sort of 5.30 from the head teacher secretary saying, can you come in tomorrow morning at nine o'clock for a meeting? No, I've got another meeting <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. But then, you know, that that's a reality check. But obviously, I, I then had to move everything around because it's your child and you want it to work and you want to understand what's going on and you don't want to be seen as a difficult parent and you want to be available. This is important. So the pressures and, you know, if you're a single parent or you need to go to work, as you said, it's not a straightforward. So the pressures on parents are immense. And that's why I feel really strongly that this is an area that really needs a sort of forensic understanding and a kind of really good team around the child. And we talk about the team around the child. And one of the things that I talk about is, can you collect, is there somebody to meet the child before they go in in the morning and just make sure they're relaxed and how are you feeling? It's a small thing, but she, this particular girl said to me, they always ask me, am I okay? So she said, well, I always say yes. <laughs> so it's that, it's that sort of thing. It's a open and closed questions. <laughs> they, my nephew with school refused that they always are. He always used to go see the Senko at the end of the day. And she would say, how are you? He had his three friends waiting outside. They'd only wait so long yeah. or he'd have to work, walk home alone. So when asked, how was your day? The answer is fine. fine. <laughs> no matter what had happened, exactly. because if he said fine, he could get out and yeah. walk home with his. So there's certain things like that. You're going, really, they're just feeding you what yeah. what you want. It's like when you're 
ask your wife, do you want any dessert? The answer is no. The answer is yes, but she just wants yours. It's that sort of <laughs> misleading answer. Sorry if I've offended anyone there. <laughs> but my nephew, my other nephew, he had issues around going into school and they analysed it. They didn't do that. What they did is he could go into the class early. He didn't have to wait in the playground. So they could walk into school. He was allowed to go in and go into the classroom. And that was the solution. And that's all it took, which isn't rocket science. It cost, it's just... It didn't cost very much. didn't cost... It's just like, it's a small change. Yes, yes. And was it almost like when he got in the playground, I don't know if it was when he got in the playground, his anxiety just started going up and up. And when he got to that, it was gone. Whereas, I don't know what it was, but that small change... Yeah was a really big help. Absolutely. I mean, it's meeting outside the school somewhere or going somewhere, whatever the adjustment is, as long as it happens when the child is expecting it. Because I've been in a situation where the plan was made and child agreed to go into school. No one was there to meet her. So we go back to the trust issues, as you were saying earlier. If we're going to make a plan and we're all going to keep our side of the bargain, young person, parent, school. Let's make sure that we all keep our side of the bargain. Definitely. is. It's all about, I think it's all trust. It's, it's a, a child goes into school at the first day of school or whatever else goes here. My mum says this is a great place. I'm going to trust this. Mm. And at some point that trust has been eroded. Somehow, somewhere that trust has gone. And they don't feel it is safe. It's hurting them. It's impacting them. It's, you, you've got to build that up. Yeah. If you as an adult have drunk too much cider one weekend and you throw up on your cider, you won't drink cider for a very long time, will you? You don't go, it was just that. Yeah. Well, you blame the food, but something else, but you just, you won't go back to it. You're literally, oh, I can't, for me, I can't drink Southern Comfort. Bad incident when I was 18. I can never touch Southern Comfort. If I smell it, it makes me almost vomit straight away. Yeah. If you kind of think about that for the child, is that same sort of thing? Is what's going to take, what's going to take me to drink Southern Comfort? The answer is never. But in other situations, it's like, okay, if we do it a different way, if we dress it up as this, or if we do this, they might perceive it differently. And we can not trick them, but help them see that it's all right. It's not just, no, I've said it's fine, so it's fine. Come back in. No, there's a huge, mm. I don't trust this. Mm. I'm protecting myself. Mm. I'm not going in. I mean, what we're talking about here is pupil voice and sort of things being child-centred and plans being made around the child. And I think that for some teachers, senkos, leaders, parents, that is a concept that is not entirely comfortable. Yes. And I think we have to, I still believe you can have authority whilst facilitating the child's point of view. Yes, completely. But that's a sort of... It takes longer. I think you need to feel very secure in yourself as a professional to be able to listen and what is the child, young person, really saying? Have I asked the right question? So I, so rather than say, are you okay, for example, you could say, it's really basic, what went well today for you? 
it may take a bit longer than one minute. It does. It takes longer than fine or okay, but it's more meaningful. And if the child is telling you something meaningful, well, I had a really good day today because actually someone spoke to me or I got picked in PE. Or no, I had a horrible day today because I put my hand up and got the answer wrong and I felt stupid all day and didn't want to, didn't want to take part in any other lessons. Then you've got something meaningful. So which of the lessons that you, which was the one you got the answer right in? And, well, that's fantastic. And blah, blah, gold star. And which of the ones that you didn't understand? Well, actually I did understand, but I was too upset because I was too scared to answer the teacher because I thought I might get it wrong or I got this wrong. And, you know, whatever the scenario is, you're getting something meaningful. Once you've got something meaningful, you're already starting to build trust. And they will then trust you with more and more information, which you can then hopefully use to adapt your interaction and your approach and your understanding will improve on how you interact and relate to that young person. So if I were training, I'd look at those questions. What are you asking? Is it a perfunctory question? Do you really care what the child is, how their day's been? And that's another thing because they know if you don't care. <laughs> they do. They so do. They so do. I, I like, there's a thing called two stars and a wish. I think it initially came in as a marking thing. I have no idea where it came in with, but I've watched it used. When I was a governor, I went to, on an ANSET day and it was at the end of the morning session, they went around each person went two stars and a wish from what we've just done. So what do you, what do two things you like, one thing you'd like to improve. Mm. And I like that because two stars and a wish. If you're going to ask me that every single day, then by the time the second or third day, I'm going, oh, I'm going to mention that in my wish. Because you know the question that's going to come at the end of the day. Exactly. And you sit there and go, I've hated that. I'm going to mention that. And it kind of, it's helping you ask those questions throughout the day yourself. Oh, that was good. I'm going to tell, I'm going to say, I know I've used it, but that two stars and a wish is always good because it's what great things happened and what could you improve? What, or what not could you improve, but could someone else improve? What's impacted you? How could it get better? And I like that because we're doing some positives exactly. and then going, what else would make it better? Which I love that. With what we're doing, we're actually encouraging the young person to reflect yes. on the day, which is quite hard because by the time they get home, most parents have had, you know, you, you ask the child what happened at the end of the day. There's, there may have been a 30 minute delay if you didn't pick them up yourself, or even if you pick them up and you walk home or get the bus or drive them home, they still can't remember. No. <laughs> but if they're being asked by a teacher who is their trusted person or support person or whatever, that then is a sort of relationship building, relationship cementing activity. And I think it's really good. But re reflection is something that particularly autistic and other neurodivergent kids aren't great at. No. Because there tends to be, how do we say, well, a lot of catastrophizing thoughts. Yes. So you've had a brilliant day, but you remember the day, the time when you lost your sock. Yes. The most random thing, lost my sock, the rest of the day, it doesn't matter if I got 100% and everything, I'll remember that. And it is, it's hard. I mean, it's, 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 you're going into that mindfulness zone of, you focus on, there must have been something good that happened. <laughs> yeah. There must have been something. Exactly. So I go to my daughter, how was school? Rubbish. I go, what happened? They're like, nothing. I went, well, that's a good day then. She went, how's it a good day? Nothing happened. I went, exactly. Nothing bad happened. It's an okay day. 
an okay day, hasn't really had any negative. So that's a good, that's a good. But they see it as rubbish because mm. nothing's amazing has happened. I'm going, mm. yeah, but it doesn't always happen amazing stuff, but nothing bad's happened. So that's good. That's good. But even sort of being encouraged to remember a good thing or even being encouraged to understand the difference between what went well, a good thing, or it was just, it was okay. There was nothing in particular to report. And again, if you are in this situation where you're going two stars in a wish and they're looking at you blankly, what are you, your two stars in a wish? Let's model it. Absolutely. Yeah? So my two stars are uh, Susie Rowland came in. And the reason that's great is the other star is she bought flapjacks and Rocky <laughs> Roads. So they're my two stars. And my wish would have been she bought in. No, but it's, <laughs> but you can have fun. And that's the thing. If you turn into a funny thing like that of, let's say something like my two stars of wish and my wish would be we actually had milk this morning so I could have had my breakfast. Mm. It's just helping them see, oh, that's what you're after. And that's the sort of information you want. Oh, you're coming into school hungry. So yeah, it would have been nice to have breakfast this morning. And you're just helping them see, oh, What's a star? What's these two stars in a wish? What is it? And you modelling it and saying, actually, at work, I had a rubbish day. And they're going, oh, I thought every day your life was perfect because you're a parent. That's always an eye-opener mm. for kids, is that your life isn't perfect. You have bad days, good days. So yeah, that modelling of you saying two stars in a wish for your day and saying that, yes, there are still some idiots at work, not just at school. Absolutely. But the vulnerability, I think, of being a carer, parent, Senko, I think, I mean, I've seen such high quality individuals at work and such fantastic engagements and we have experienced it personally which which is it's transformative it is if you work with somebody and your young person builds up a good relationship with them and you can see them again you have that sense of being an observer rather than being completely enmeshed in what their life is it's a nice respite you can actually think you see them chatting and they're sharing a joke and you think that's amazing and that's possible that they can exist in that positive space because someone has replaced you in a parental role in the school setting. And when you don't see that, I think that's when it can, it can get a bit complicated because then you feel difficult to trust the adults in the school, difficult because they're not doing what you think they should be doing or they're not listening to you or listening to the child. So it's a lot of psychology, a lot of psychology. And I know that some teachers are a bit well, I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm here to be a teacher and to teach my subject. But teaching has always been about psychology. Yes. Teaching and learning is all about psychology. So this is just another little, a little bit to add into the suite of amazing skills. And it is, we're always learning the psychological exactly. stuff. We're always learning. Yeah. We're always improving. And my, the teachers my girls talk about the most are the teachers that reveal a little something about themselves. Yes, yeah, so the one who watches Great British Bake Off every week, my mm. daughter knows that Thursday we're going to talk about it, apart from when she didn't watch it that day because this was on, so we could talk about it. It was kind of something to look forward to. There's a bit of issue about that teacher. Someone else did this. But there was a, they're the teachers that she had, I think had a better relationship because mm. she kind of saw there was a human, there was a slight interest. Mm. And it doesn't have to be the same interest. Yeah, you don't have to like everything in your class, Yeah. You might support the wrong team compared to the kids, but that turns into fun as well, mm. especially when you have the football match again. But it's that being, having something about you mm. more than just you are a teacher and that's you, but be a bit, bring a bit of you into that classroom. The relationships are there. It will help that trust. Mm. And it also means that if you know that, my, as soon as I said to Bake Off, I went, 
and why don't you bake some cookies? And my did my daughter did that, and she went in at Christmas, and that became every year at Christmas she baked gingerbread or something for her whole class for five years, all the way through secondary. That's what she did, and the teacher loved it, and it was just a little something, but it made my daughter cook cookies for the school, and and it is just from these little things teachers did that as a parent we could hook into. Well, your teacher like this, why don't you do that? And it's like, oh yes. Because you, you want to please other people as a human. Yes, exactly. So it just gave her a connection to that person of, I could do this. Yes, yes. I think it's fantastic that I see so much potential. You've basically got all these young minds yes. in your hands and they're all different and some of them are very different. But I think that is so exciting because somebody that I've worked with who she was struggling and she went in last week or this week I've lost track and she actually was so pleased that she'd gone in and it went well it'd gone well that she <laughs> put herself forward to be class captain which was uh, I know it actually blew everyone's mind because she was so pleased at what she'd achieved by just getting in for a few hours that she then sort of had this whole well I, I feel good and I, I'd like to put myself forward for class captain and then it's what? It, that's, it is the thing. It's the same way as stepping back from my daughter. It's kind of she picked up speed and momentum from somewhere. And I'm sort of going, where has this come from? And the answer is, I've kind of been holding you back by protecting you. And for her, she said she almost threw up on her first day of college. Yeah, the anxiety. So she didn't continue on at her school. Had a new college, 2,000 people a year. New, everything was going to be new, new, yeah, trained to school, not done that before. She was so worried. She was, felt like she was going to throw up and she was so anxious. And she came back and she talked about her day for like two hours. Mm. And she is a quiet, anxious girl. And she's talking about a job interview. She's talking about this. She's talking about how everyone was more socially awkward than her. And she was on fire. Mm. And it was just, Amazing, but that's not how the day started. But it was, she got there and was like, I did this. And then she went to the room, talk about yourselves, and no one else did. She said, well, I do this. And it kind of sparked the conversation up. So it's almost like, I'm okay, this is going all right. And it just, the speed, just that momentum picked up all day. I find out tonight how the second day's gone. It's brilliant. I'm so excited. Because she really is going off on her own. Not my daughter in school and I'll get a phone call. It's, this is your life. This mm. is your world. Mm. Go enjoy it. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing she's realizing it is hers and hers to enjoy. That's a big thing for her to see. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about individuals with their own thoughts, feelings and ambitions. And I think, yeah, we have an issue with school non-attendance, but we also have an opportunity and I think that is what I hold on to. And that's what kind of gets me leaping out of bed in the morning. So I think it's a huge opportunity to, and a privilege, actually, to work with some young people. And I honestly sit there and think, I can't wait to see you in 10 years' time. No, that's the amazing thing. And I just want to talk about my attendance. <laughs> oh. I just want to, I'm going to wrap up my attendance. Yes. So uh, my mum was a teacher, which meant that if her leg was hanging off, she went in. Yeah, mine too. Which meant, however it happened with me, however ill I was, <laughs> I had to go into, my mum had to go to work. Exactly. So 
I got the 100% year attendance. Yeah, so my attendance from secondary school, from year seven to year nine, didn't miss a day. Year 10, I was still good, but a bit like you're saying at 14, I'm sort of going, who am I? Why am I doing this? Started entering. I took a whole two weeks off in year 11 because I hadn't done any of my science coursework. So I took two weeks off. I didn't tell my parents. My parents were at work, so they had no idea. The first week I was supposed to do my coursework, but my bed was so comfy. So I got no work done in the first week. So I had to take a second week off. By the end of the first week, and this was in the 90s, where they stupidly sent a letter home to the parents and guardians of. Yes. Which meant I just picked it up and put it in my pocket. And that never got to my parents. My parents, I still to this day don't know. I took two weeks off in secondary school. (laughs) So that was it. So that was all right. Then I got to college. Mm. And... The teaching wasn't great. It was, they weren't great teachers. The courses weren't great. I love maths. I love computing. I, in reality, I should have enjoyed it. I hated it. I hated college. It was the relevance of it. What I was doing in pure maths, I did a whole A-level in pure maths. I don't see the relevance of anything after the first five weeks. I love statistics. I love mechanics. There was relevance. That was practical maths. I loved that. I didn't see the pure maths. In computing, we were doing stuff which was 20 years out of date. Mm. We were using a programming language which was really out of date. And it's like, well, I'm not going to learn anything from this because it's so out of date. It's not even like I can just take it. But it didn't make any sense. And what the relevance went down, mm. and I am in the neurodiverse world, so the relevance went down, so my attendance went down. I still got two A-levels out of college. But my attendance was, on average, over two years, 20%. I scraped my A-levels. And it's all down to that relevance. Why am I going? Why am I learning? All I've done since I finished college is learn. Whatever I'm doing, I will learn. I will be the best I can. Mainly because if the best I can, even when I worked at IKEA, the best I could be meant I earned more. I was the one who got the overtime above others because I could do more than... It just meant I got more money. So I learned and I pushed. I saw relevance to it all. And then I learned. So for those children who maybe aren't, is it, as you said, that art, what's the relevance of doing history? What's the relevance of me doing RE if all I want to do is this? And that relevance, I think, for neurodiversity, and we talked before this about kind of autism and neurodiversity, is kind of like a truth thing. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's kind of, this is, yeah. Whereas you go to school because you should. Why? Yeah. I think autistic people go, why? minds. Yeah, why am I doing RE? Why am I doing history? Why am I doing this? Why? And if you can't get a good answer, you go, well, I'm not going to do it. And I think that is what a lot of things we hit is that why. What is the reason? I need a relevance. I need, so my daughter doing year nine, doing options. We're researching careers. What does she need to get? And it's helping her see why she'll be doing certain things. It's helping her choose her options. And she can see what she needs to get. And that's giving her a reason. And that'll keep her going a bit more than if I didn't give that to her. So yeah, relevance. If, if your child is struggling, trying to work out the relevance. Where are they going? What do they want to do? What do they, how's their vision? What do they think about school? How relevant is school for where they want to be? And I think somebody on the podcast previously talked about, I think it was Kim Griffin, I think. That all she taught in a, in an area where everyone worked. I think it was where the East Ender Studios were or something. So everyone in that area worked there. 
yeah, you either made the scenery, you're an extra or something. That's everyone worked. So why put all this effort in school? Because I'm just going to get a job there like everyone else. What was the relevance of me learning? That's a very good point, actually. That's one of the things that I talked about last week. Why should I go back into school on Monday? So we went through the whole timetable and did a, like you did, what do I hate? What am I going to drop? What am I going to keep? What am I going to drop? I want to be this. I want to be this. So I said, well, go and have a look at the exam boards that your school uses and do a bit of research, see what fires you up. And then she comes back to say, I'm going to be a team captain. I'm going to be the class captain. So there's some something that's just... Them li- going li- off doing that li- research. There's a little match there in her brain. She's thinking, oh, well, if I'm, I do this, you know, it's a leadership, you're good at that, you're good at this. Reflecting back the positives that they sometimes don't see in themselves. Yes. And again, it's, a, it's hugely empowering to do, but sometimes we can get so wrapped up in telling them what they can't do. And then, then this sense of this negativity and the catastrophizing and I'm rubbish and I can't, everything, I don't get any friends. And Let's breathe. Let's look at this from a different perspective. And it does take time. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so it does. For a child to find their voice, they've got to actually go physically to find it. They've got to actually find who they are. Mm. And that's not a night, a day o- overnight thing. That take them once they find that, mm. then their voice grows, yeah, and it really grows, and it'll pick up that. It's, but it just takes time, and that's from all my podcasting and everything I've learned is the biggest, the best gift I can give my kids is my time. Absolutely, my unadulterated, pure. Yes, you are. I'm not in the room with you on my phone. Yeah. I'm not just, you. I am, yes, you have me for three hours. You have me for two hours. Time and attention. Yes. Because there is some research that showed even though some parents are at home with their kids, they need to be interacting with their kids. So if they're at home watching TV, just doing something else, any other activity does not have the same impact as if they were at home and interacting, talking, playing, listening to their kids yes and it is it's if they're not into what you're into you be into what they're into mm. yeah but time and attention conversation what do you like get them to help their opinions i prefer this I'm, all that it all comes out later on in their voice now i need to wrap this up because this was supposed to be about 45 minutes and we've been going for coming up to an hour and a half so no. we've gone slightly no over way. if you are still awake <laughs> I am ending it. We are at the end. We have got to the end. But it's a very big topic. And the fact that your book is called I Can't Go to School, is that I can't. I just, I can't. Yeah, it's not a polite no. (laughs) Absolutely. I will say one thing before we wrap up. The book is a workbook for children. So it's written very accessibly, ideally to be worked through with a parent or psychological assistant, emotional support worker, whoever the young person is, has a there as their trusted person. And there's also going to be a free parent's guide to go with it, to signposting, etc., and a professional's guide as well. So it's all there. So all the bits, it's all about joining together. So there's a whole pack there for you and it'll be out in December 2022. 
So I'm going to be putting links to Susie Rowland's website, to contact Susie, her Facebook, so all of that. And she's given me some links to her previous books. So all of that will be on the show notes. Wherever you listen to the podcast, you'll be able to go there. And if you're listening to this after December, you'll find a link to her book on her website. So that's a great place to go. So Susie, thank you for coming today. I love I love this topic because I've had two nephews, as you heard, who had gone through this. I've witnessed other children from parents. So I don't have experience of that in my household, but I've seen from the outside the impact. I've seen how the parents responded, how that. I've seen the children. I've seen from the out, I've seen a lot. And it isn't just a simple, it's a complicated, very complicated thing. And none of them that I've witnessed were the same remotely. But what the constant thing I saw in all of them is the initial school response was very bad. That's the only thing I'll say. They all improved after, but the initial response was blame parents. That's where it started, but it improved after that. So yeah, it's not always rosy. It's not here, but they did. And one of them, which I was really angry with at the start, really flipped it. They obviously realized, oh, it's not this. And they really flipped it and they did an amazing job. Good. So sometimes, yeah, it's a couple, but yeah, it's a very important issue that schools need to really think about. But we could have, I could have talked about this for another couple of hours. There's a couple of things I go, no, don't know, we're still in the flow. No, don't mention that. There's loads of other little bits, which we've I've touched on in other podcasts. So that is important. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on that subscribe button. Also follow us on social media, share us with others. So on Twitter, we're at The Sendcast and on Facebook and Instagram, The Sendcast keeps it really simple. And if you're struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, you want to know what is available, come and have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps progress for pupils with SEND. And if you're a school in England and you want to know about pre-key stage standards, those working significantly below the engagement or anything like that, please get in contact. And if you're a school in Wales and you curriculum for Wales and you want to know all about that and what we've done, please get in contact. You can also find out about our online training, our conferences, read our blog or watch our webinars. It is all on the B Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website, you'll find a link to book a meeting with me, and you'll find my email address all in the show notes too. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from him. Bye. Bye.